0: Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, found on page 473. And you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on the good. So, who are your enemies?
1: When we hear the word enemy, we often think of uh, nations going to war, or perhaps games where you uh, play uh, and you have, you, know, you have the blue team and the red team, and so you, know, you go against them, the, the team that's not on your team is your enemy. Perhaps we just think of people who are just, well, plain nasty to us. But of those examples, uh, I mean, only the last one really applies to most of us here. And even then, it's not that common, is it? To have somebody who, just, who really just is, is in it for you. They just, they just want to make your life miserable. It's not, you don't come across though, that kind of person too often in our culture. And even if there is somebody like that, well, you, you, know, you, can, you just tend to try and avoid them or, or, or you know, just, just steer clear of them as much as you can. Well, as we hear the sixth and the final antithesis in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, it would be tempting again, as it has been all along, as we've heard the last few weeks, to read Jesus' instruction and to consider it just like the Pharisees would have. Hmm, you know, this, well, this one's pretty easy. I don't have any enemies and nobody is persecuting me. So uh, I guess, hey, I'm good with this one. Jesus, what's next on the list? Are you sure? And even if there aren't people in your life that you would call enemies, let me ask you this morning, do you love like your heavenly Father? Do you love as He loves? As we've seen all along, to consider the, the teachings of Jesus in these antitheses, in these, you have heard it said, but I say to you, in the same way as the Pharisees do, would be to miss his point and likely to miss the true state of our own hearts. As we work our way through this passage, I want us to consider the love that Jesus calls us to, and give you three headings. One, love your enemies, two, love supernaturally, three, love like Him. Let's have our Bibles and our hearts open as we begin. Firstly, love your enemies. For many Christians throughout history, Jesus' teaching would apply, you know, to uh, the tribe or a city a few kilometers away that was plotting to raid and kill them. You know, there would be many followers of Christ who would be in that situation. Some, even today, would still be in that circumstance. We, thankfully, live in a time and a place where we don't have to think about those kinds of enemies, but whatever the context, Jesus' is teaching applies to all of us, doesn't it? He says, "You have heard it said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Now what's interesting about what Jesus says here is that the first half is well known and found in Scripture. We read it earlier from Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." But the second half... About hating your enemy, that Jesus says, there is not found anywhere in Scripture. But the idea was certainly there in the context, in the air that they were breathing, in the things that people thought and felt in the time of Jesus. You might remember I mentioned the Essenes a couple of weeks ago, they were a Jewish sect in Judaism. And in order to join the Essenes, a person had to make an oath, and part of that oath was this, that he will do no harm to anyone, sorry, this is Josephus talking about the oath they would take, either of his own accord or by the command of others, that he will always hate the wicked. Now, we don't actually see many examples of it written down like this so boldly, so explicitly, but there is no doubt that there was some serious hatred towards the Roman Empire from the Jews. It was only about 200 years earlier that the Maccabean family led a Jewish revolt against the Seleucids. After Jesus' death, the Jews would be led again Uh, by some radical in a war against Rome that would result in the destruction of the temple. And not only that, there was plenty of animosity between various groups as well. We see examples of this in the Bible itself. And one of the most well-known is the one we just read from Luke chapter 10. A lawyer asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And when he recognizes that loving your neighbor as yourself is part of it, we read this in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I get that I meant to do that, but who is my neighbor? And kids, what's a neighbor? someone who lives next door. That's right. It could also be someone who lives across the street or just in not too far from where you live. And when we hear the term neighbor, we think of people who live in houses that aren't far from ours. Those are usually who we think of as our neighbors. Well, Jesus answers the lawyer by telling the now famous parable of the good Samaritan. And it's famous Because of the same point that Jesus is about to make in our passage in Matthew 5 this morning. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans, they were, kids have a guess, what do you think? Did they like each other? No, they were enemies. The Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. And even though we don't have any records of it being written down, of saying it's okay to hate your enemy, it's clear that hating your enemy was more than okay in the time of Christ. Well, listen to what Jesus has to say about that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, as I've been saying all along in this series, what Jesus is doing with these antitheses is drawing out of the law what God intended from it and fulfilling it in himself. He did say, I have not come to abolish abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so these are things that the scribes and Pharisees and perhaps most of the Jews missed in the law that God had given him, given them. As we've seen all along, Jesus is not contradicting or opposing what is written in the Old Testament, but rather he is opposing their wrong interpretation of it. To some extent, you can see where the justification of reading Leviticus 19.18 this way comes from, where it's okay to hate your enemy. It says in that verse, "...you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people." It's very, very clear in that verse that in the immediate context, God is telling Israel to love their fellow Jewish countrymen to their fellow Israelite brothers and sisters. So if a Jew or scribe reads that, then it's natural to ask the question, well, how do I treat non-Jews? How do I treat even those who are my enemies? And if you wanted to justify your own sin which again is what we've seen the Pharisees were doing, then it would be easy to ignore the passages in the Mosaic law that tell you how to answer that question. Look back at the lawyer from Luke 10, 29. He says he asks this question because he desires to justify himself. He has no interest in actually getting the real answer. He simply wants an answer that will fit what he desires. That's a trap that's too easy to fall into, brothers and sisters. How easy is it for us to actually want to find some kind of justification in God's Word for the things that we would rather desire instead of seek any kind of genuine change? It's what we call virtue signaling these days. Where, you know, as long as you pay lip service to whatever is supposed to be the right thing, as long as you say the right thing, then it doesn't matter whether you actually want to do the right thing and go on to do it or not. So you can justify yourself and tell yourself you're doing what is right, when in reality your heart remains hard. Be on your guard, church. Jesus shows how the scribes and Pharisees and those who had bought into this narrative of hate your enemy missed what was already in the law. Let me give you some clear examples. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Do you notice the language there? Your enemy. And then he goes on to specify, the one who hates you. God made very clear to his people that they had a moral obligation to go and help the very person who had been the very opposite of friendly to them. Their enemies. Another good example is Deuteronomy 23 verse 7. You shall not abhor... Kids, there don't want know what abhor means. It's a tricky word, that one. Hate, it means hate. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Both Edomites and Egyptians were foreigners. They were not Israelites. According to Leviticus 19.18, they wouldn't qualify as neighbors, because they're not sons and daughters of their own people. And yet... God tells them they are not to abhor them which means not hate and despise them. He even goes as far as saying the Edomites are their brothers. And that's even more what's even more incredible is that God says this about the Egyptians as well. He says you were a sojourner in his lands, but he conveniently leaves out the part where they were slaves in their land. They've barely just been rescued out from the Egyptians' cracking whip, and God is now saying, you shouldn't hate them? And to the cynic, it would sound like God is saying, hey, you know what, you should actually thank you. So you should actually thank the Egyptians for you know, letting you live in their land. That's not exactly what they would have expected to hear, I imagine. Now these are just two examples. There are others. But we can see, even from just these two, how the people of Israel were meant to show the kind of love for enemies that Christ taught in Matthew 5. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy was never something that could be justified. I, I don't, even just this verse, I'm not sure how you can uh, justify that. And indeed, this is what Christ himself not just taught, but embodied in his life and in his death. You see, in so doing, in in loving even our enemies, in loving even their enemies, the Jews were supposed to be like their God. And Jesus says, no less here. As God's people, as followers of Christ, we are to love our enemies. I like the way Jesus articulates it here because it sharpens the point of love your neighbor. To us. You see, love, love your neighbor, it gets good press and for obvious reasons. Uh, there, there'd be scarcely a Christian who would not be able to tell you that the, the two commands we ought to obey are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But just like any headline or just like any catchphrase that gets repeated a lot and defined too little, it can start to become meaningless. Or worse, it can start to be defined in a way that looks nothing like the original, looks nothing like the way Jesus intended. And so just as the lawyer wanted to figure out who his neighbor was, in our obedience to these texts, we ought to ask, but not with the same motives, who is our enemy? There are obvious answers to that question. It would, it's those who would want to harm us, right? We saw last week, that was, last week's passage was about those who harm us and how we ought to respond to them, to turn the other cheek. But it's also those who either hate us or would prefer that bad stuff happened to us. Perhaps those who hold grudges against us. Perhaps those who hold on to things that we have said or did that offended them in the past. Can you think of any such people in your life? Maybe you can't. And maybe that's because you genuinely don't. Well, if that's the case, could it be because you don't want to break the so-called 11th commandment, thou shalt, not, thou shalt be nice? It very well may be that you don't have any enemies because out of an abundant desire to never offend anybody, you've also backed down from sharing the truth and goodness of the gospel, which can be very offensive to our world. Or perhaps, rather than seeking greater clarity in the truth, you would rather more quickly say, hey, let's just agree to disagree. But it could also be that you think you don't have any enemies, but the reality is that you get people offside and either refuse or aren't willing to face the possibility that there are people who hate you or who hold grudges against you. How would you react if you found out there were such people? How would you feel towards them? Would you resent them in return? Would you begin to justify yourself and say, well, you know, they're just a nasty piece of work or, you know, nobody likes them anyway, so it's not like I'm doing anything different to anybody else. Or even, well, they hate me. So Jesus, I'll obey you as far as not hating them back. Friends, Jesus' definition of love is not simply an absence of hate. Jesus' definition of love is not simply an absence of hate. The children of the Father love their enemies. And that is shown in how we treat those who persecute us. One of the ways we love our enemies is by praying for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus says. That certainly includes physical persecution, though that's not as common in 21st century Darwin. But it also includes things like verbal abuse, Employment, exclusion, or limitation, even social persecution, bad-mouthing, ridiculing for our faith, that is persecution. Do we pray for people like that in our lives? Church, let me encourage us to intentionally add such people to our prayer lists as regularly as is appropriate. If it's an enemy from way back that you never see, maybe pray for them every few months. If it's someone you regularly struggle with, maybe pray for them once a week or even daily. I have no doubt that God uses our prayers, not just for their sake, but for ours also, as he shapes our hearts to be more like Christ. And in doing this, we demonstrate our family line. The NET translates this verse, so that you may be like your father in heaven, which I think is a good way of drawing out what Jesus is getting at. When he says that you may be sons of your father, he's not saying that in order to be sons, you must do this. And we'll come back to that in verse 48. By loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, we do what our heavenly father desires of us. We are like Him when we do that. When we love our enemies, we demonstrate our pedigree. We display the character of the Father whose sons and daughters we are. How? Well, Jesus gives us a reason. In verse 45, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God gives the gifts of his creation to every person. The extrovert and the introvert the forthright and the hesitant, the sick and the well, the abrasive and the congenial, the annoying co-worker and the best friend, the liars and the truth-tellers, the rude and the polite, the unbearable and the likable, the arrogant and the humble, the ignorant and the wise, the murderer and the lifesaver, the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. God makes the sun and rain and the resources of planet Earth available to everyone. Now, of course, the Bible also teaches that no one is righteous. No, not one. But this is Jesus' way of showing that even our enemies, even those who seek to persecute and do us harm, receive these natural gifts of God. This is what Christians have called God's common grace. We use that term because these material goods that we need to survive are gracious gifts. We didn't make the sun or the rain or the ground or the grain. Last I checked, no scientist claims that a human being was behind the Big Bang. And we say they are common because they are available to the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Now, some people might be limited from receiving them for various reasons, like being in a prison cell with no windows or living in a slum where food is scarce. But those are limitations created by people, not God. God's common grace is available to both the evil and the good, the disciple of Christ and the enemy of Christ. And God doesn't deny these things to even the worst of the worst. So it shouldn't surprise us that the answer to the question, and who is my enemy, overlaps with the answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? The answer to who is my neighbor includes our enemies and those who persecute us. We are called to love all people without prejudice. In the same way that God gives the sun the rain and life to all people. As is often the case this is easier easy to say but much trickier to apply. We had the opportunity to think about this last week and these passages they definitely overlap And notice how Jesus talks about the one who is evil in verse 39, and the evil and the good in verse 45. And also the heart attitude of praying for those who persecute you. That sounds a lot like turning the other cheek. But there's a slight difference here as well, isn't there, between last week's and this week. Jesus' commands in the previous passage are in response to someone's act of harm or offense toward us. If someone slaps you in the cheek, you turn the other cheek. If someone sues you for your tunic, you give them your cloak. That is a reactive response. But this week, his instruction is proactive. We love Even if an enemy has not yet done any evil to us. Who are those in your life that could broadly be considered enemies, even if they haven't done any harm to you yet, or even intended to? Think about the contrast. The neighbor is the person with whom you have a good relationship at best, or at worst, you're at least friendly to them. The enemy could be anyone who doesn't fall into that category. It's everyone from the one who is actually persecuting you to the rude sales assistant to the person who holds opposing views to you. Others might simply be people that you just don't like. They're not quite enemies, but you don't get along with them and they contribute nothing to your overall happiness. As far as you can tell, it's better for both of you to just, you know, just stay apart from each other. All it takes is a misinterpreted or misunderstood comment from someone else, sometimes even a friend, sometimes even a close friend. And that could be the first step towards them being in your bad books. How generous are you in the grace that you extend to those? who step by step start to become those that are on the other side of the fence. How kind are you to those who are or who are becoming your enemies? I must say over the last couple of years in the life of our church, as I've spoken with many of you about difficult relationships in your life, it's been so encouraging to see us strive to embody this. When hating your enemy or the more socially acceptable version of ignoring your enemy is the easy road and the strong temptation, I have loved seeing a grace-fueled striving to obey Jesus here. Press on, brothers and sisters. It is hard work, but it is good work. It is worthy work. To be like our Heavenly Father, we must shower neighbors and enemies with love and grace the same way His common grace falls on the good and the evil. But how? Well, that's where our next verses help us out. Love supernaturally. Jesus makes this even clearer in verses 46 to 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Almost 50 years ago, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, published the book The Selfish Gene. In it, he presents the idea that living things exist in order to ensure the survival and reproduction of genes. The genes that make up your body, the genes that make up all the other living organisms in the world. And that eventually has its outworking in us as people and is a common evolutionary assumption. Everything we do is in service of our survival. Why do you eat and drink? To survive. Why do you fight back when you're attacked? To survive. Why do you look after your family and love those who love you? To survive. Jesus is pointing out here in verses 46 and 47 that the kind of love and self-sacrifice that Dawkins describes is natural and obvious to everybody. Jesus and plenty of others, they didn't need an advanced understanding of genetics to see this. Of course, he says, we can see selfish reasons for why people love and sacrifice for those who love them. It's a principle that keeps many relationships, many business partnerships, families, and a host of other groups and communities going. It's clear to to anybody on the street. Kids, have you heard of the oxpecker and the rhino? Have you heard of this? Anyone? Do we have any, like, animal kingdom... Buffs, Alexander's gone, so he would have said yes. The oxpecker and the rhino, let me show you a picture. These small birds sit on large mammals. I assume that's where the name comes from. I didn't confirm that, but oxpecker, as in he's pecking at the ox. They sit on large mammals and they eat lice and ticks off their backs. Sometimes they even eat wax out of their ears. It's gross. But in exchange, the oxpecker has food and a good perch. You know, a reasonable place of safety. So this is nature's version of, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Human beings are no different. We enter mutually beneficial relationships and partnerships. If if I can derive some benefit from you, I'm happy to make some kind of sacrifice for you. I'm happy to love you. The selfish gene. The Bible goes deeper and reveals that this isn't just our genetics that determine this, but for human beings, it is also our sin. Sin is inherently selfish. Therefore, it is natural to love those who love you or who can provide you with some kind of benefit. Jesus says that this is so plain that even the tax collectors and the Gentiles do it. They were considered the worst of the worst sinners. The equivalent for us today might be underbelly drug lords or mass murderers or slave traders. Or for some people, us Christians. And Jesus is saying that even such people, those that you would think are at the very bottom of the depravity of sin, they know how to love those who love them. Now, to be clear, this isn't the only thing Jesus says about tax collectors and Gentiles. Yes, he uses them as a reference point for terrible depravity, but his life and ministry clearly had a significant emphasis on reaching them. So just read the rest of the Gospels to see that. But he brings them up here. He talks about them because he makes his point unmistakably clear. Even the most evil can love those who love them. But Jesus says, where's the reward in that? Anyone can do that. But the children of God are different. As for you, my disciples, you love even those who do not love you. Even those who hate you. Love your enemies. This sets Jesus' disciples apart as the salt of the earth and... A city on a hill. Because it is so standout that nothing else could explain it. It is supernatural. It is a supernatural kind of love. And we're not just talking about being nice. I asked you at the beginning to picture those in your life who might be considered your enemies or even those who are on their way to that status those that you would rather avoid. What might loving them look like? Perhaps it looks like being the first one to make the step towards reconciliation in a relationship when you are not on speaking terms. Reconciliation is not necessarily guaranteed, but that would certainly be an act of love towards them. It may look like having an endless supply of forgiveness for your friends or your housemate or your family member who continues to make your life difficult. Parents, that includes your children. And children, that includes your parents. Jesus talks about greeting in verse 47. Loving your enemy might even be as simple as greeting a person who is always surly or bad-tempered. I remember a work colleague many years ago who was an extremely rude person. He sometimes wouldn't even respond to you when you said hello to him. I wasn't the only one who noticed this. I I wish I'd had Jesus' words in this verse far deeper in my heart back then. Instead of loving someone who evidently had no interest in seeking my good or getting to know me at all, I found myself wishing he just wasn't around whenever I came to work. Can you relate? Do you notice how quickly our hearts move further and further away from wanting to love even our enemies? How easy it is to move towards just making the relationship comfortable. Comfortable enough for both parties. And greeting here, while including saying hello, it extends to more than just that. There is warmth, a a hospitality that we are to show to others. Hebrews 13.2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels. Love is not merely the absence of hate. And an extension of that, love is not just being nice. You see, you can be nice to everyone. You can even be nice to your enemy and still not do what Jesus is commanding and still disobey His words. You can be a very pleasant, polite person, and still have an unmoved, unchanged, unloving heart. You could even be so nice uh, that uh, you truly—you know—that you can avoid truly loving your enemies. How, how often do we take Hillsong's "Cross Equals Love" and change it to "Love Equals Nice"? Real love is far more than that. After all, think about it, wouldn't loving your enemy in its highest form, especially somebody who is not a believer, look like praying and looking for every opportunity, any opportunity to share the gospel with them, even though you know they will not like that? You don't have to be a jerk about it, of course. I'm not saying love does not equal nice. There's some overlap. We know that love is patient, love is kind, it is not envy, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. But love forces us to step past niceties, to go beyond just passive conflict avoidance and to seek to love even those who persecute us in a proactive way. And that goes for your fellow members in church too. Perhaps you've taken the nice approach to some relationships in our church. If so, let me encourage you to spend some time this afternoon meditating on Ephesians chapter 4. There is so much relevant in that chapter to this morning's passage. Church, this is worth our time and attention. Why? Because love begins in the heart. You see, you don't have to be an extrovert to be obedient to this. Even if you don't have the opportunity to act on loving your enemy, it begins in here. From there, intentions, words, actions, and prayers will flow. If there is no love from here, then don't expect any kind of action to flow. And if our hearts are not set on seeking to love our neighbors and even our enemies, seeking to proactively do so, then we are drifting into disobedience. To be apathetic and to be inactive about this, to not bother looking for ways to pray for our persecutors and our enemies is to fail to love them. But this isn't the kind of thing that you can just force your heart to do, is it? You're not going to get there by a sheer act of will. And that brings us to our final heading, love like your father. Kids, I hit you with a couple of sayings last week. I hope you use them. I've got another one for you. Do any of you know the saying, chip off the old block? Anyone? I wonder if our American friends have even heard that. You've heard that? All right, good. So you do use that? Okay, good, good. I thought it might have been an Australian thing. No? No ideas? All right, well, chip off the old block means you are just like your father or your mother, usually in the context of fathers, I think. Because you think about it, if a chip breaks off a block of wood, it has the same characteristics as the block itself. It has the same color, the same quality, the same hardness. Well, in the final verse in our passage, Jesus tells us that we, followers of Christ, must be chips off the old block, the oldest block, the ancient block. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus summarizes not just the section that we're looking at today, but all of these so-called antitheses that we have seen over the last few weeks. It it, it encapsulates everything that he has said in each of those instructions. And in what should be unsurprising to us, Jesus' words once again echo the Old Testament scriptures. Return again to Leviticus 19, verse 2 says, "'You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy.'" The word is different, even though the concept is quite close. God's holiness normally refers to His perfect, unique moral purity and His righteousness, while perfection, as we see in Jesus using it, usually refers to meeting His standard perfectly. But the ideas are not so disconnected because the standard of perfection flows from God's holiness. He is the standard of perfection which, of course, is why Jesus alludes to Leviticus 19. Jesus is fulfilling the law by showing how it points to God's desire for wholehearted, heartful of love for God, obedience. The law was never given so that bookish, legalistic types could run away with it and multiply law upon law to the thousands and still have hard hearts. That was not its purpose so that lawyers could come up and justify themselves in their sin and still think and kid themselves into thinking they were obeying. It was meant to draw God's people onward and upward to loving, faithful, and joyful obedience. By way of example, just look at how many of the things we've looked at the last few weeks are in Leviticus 19 alone. Verse 10 you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. There is, give to the one who begs from you and love your enemies. Verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. There is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. No. Verses 17 and 18, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile and love your enemies. Verse 37, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. There is, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As Jesus said in verse 45, this is what the sons of the Father do. They seek to be like their heavenly Father. And just as He is perfect, we seek to and strive to be perfect. We are to embody the kind of supernatural love for our enemies that could only come from being in Christ. But that's a tall order, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I read that, and were it not for the gospel, I would be I' would just give up. How do we love our enemies? and pray for those who persecute us. How can we even do that? We can't just naturally love, supernaturally. If we could, the word would have no meaning. That would fit very well in our society today. Let's just use words however we like, regardless of whether they mean anything. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we go back to defining love as being nice. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we go back to defining neighbor as those who are nice to us and who love us back. Even though Jesus is charging his disciples to strive for this, to love like their father, the gospel reminds us that actually meeting a perfect standard ourselves is not possible by fallen humanity. And we see a great example of this later on in Matthew chapter 19. The rich young man comes to Jesus asking what he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus says he must keep the commandments. And this is the young man's response. He said, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Well, what do you say to that? I mean, he's, he's kept all the commandments. Perfectly. At least according to him. So does Jesus give him extra commandments? Does he think, wow, man, this this young man, he's really got it together. He's got 100% on the test. I need to give him some extra extra questions and make sure, maybe I should graduate him to boss-level holiness. No. Out of love for him, Jesus exposes the young man's heart by showing him that his self-perception is off-kilter that there is still so much that he has missed. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 19, 21. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Notice the similarity there with our passage. The young man thinks he's lived the perfect life, Yet Jesus shows him that he, like all others who vainly and falsely think that they've reached perfection, still fall far short. There's only one way that anyone is able to even think about seeking to be like our Heavenly Father. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so how do the disciples respond? by asking the question that all of us need to ask. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? How could it be possible for anyone to give up everything, to love neighbors, to pray for those who persecute us, and, and to proactively seek love for those who, who hate us 100% perfectly? What does Jesus say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, that is the good news. It is good news that our righteousness before God is not dependent on whether we obeyed the law better than the scribes and Pharisees did. It is good news that it is only by His grace that we can even think about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But it is only good news if we humble ourselves before Him, repenting of our sin, recognizing that we do not naturally love as He loves. And it is when we trust in Christ and turn to Him that His Spirit then works in our hearts to be more like Him. that is the only way brothers and sisters as romans 5:10 makes clear if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son all who trust in christ were once enemies on the other side of the fence and because of jesus's Death, his atoning death for us, by faith we enter into his fold. Praise God for his grace. Because in Christ, our sins are rightly punished and receive their due penalty. The spotless lamb slain for us, the only perfect human took on our sin at the cross and made it possible for us to go from enemy status to friend status with God. We can love our enemies because he did. We can pray for those who persecute us because he did on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We recognize that that was us. And were it not for God's grace, that is where we would remain. But instead, we can love our enemies. We can love all people in a supernatural way because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We look to the only person who was actually perfect We see how he loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. And we cry out, God, make me more and more like you. Help me to have such love for people as you do. When we recognize deeply that God has loved his enemies in Christ because we know we don't deserve to be his friends, then we can do the same with our enemies. And we can pray as Stephen did while the crowds stoned him to death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When we look to the Father and his great love for us, what else can we do but long to be the same? Let's pray. Search our hearts, O Lord. May they not be hard. May they not be shallow. May we not seek to paper over Difficulties, strained relationships. May we not strive to be idle in our loving of our enemies. Father, we acknowledge that this love. Is not something that we can just conjure up ourselves that automatically flows from our genes, but is a work of your spirit in our hearts. And so, as we look to our Savior, who has brought us into his fold where we were once, when we were once enemies. Lord, may we go and do likewise. Seek to be like our Father in heaven and so represent you in this world, not as those who claim to have it all together and perfect, but as those who say, Lord, by your grace, we can love even in a way that would otherwise be impossible. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.